Hey everyone, Paul and James here to tell you about one of the best music podcasts online today. It's called Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Yeah, as longtime listeners of our show know, Take It Away and its hosts, Ryan Brady and Chris Mercer, are the authority on all things Paul McCartney, Wings, and the Beatles. Their five-star rated podcast walks you through every single Paul McCartney release from 1970 to present day. That's every song on every album, including singles, B-sides, bootlegs, and you will most likely hear songs you've never heard before, which is part of the fun of the show. You'll also hear old favorites from new perspectives, all lovingly placed in the context of McCartney's career and the musical sounds of their era. Yeah, and don't miss the amazing interview with Denny Lane, co-founder of Wings and McCartney songwriting collaborator, as well as a slew of other special guest appearances that give some really cool insight into the music that spans the last 50 years. So if you're a McCartney fan, you've found your new favorite show, because I know I have. Seriously, I never Never miss an episode and neither should you that's take it away the complete paul mccartney archive podcast available for download now wherever you find podcasts now let's get on with yesterday and today the yesterday and today podcast is a fan-made not-for-profit just for fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the beatles this show is in no way affiliated with apple Corps, nor any organization connected to john paul george or ringo in any way Though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1967, Part 4, The Release of the LP, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Side B. Welcome back, Beatle people, for Part 2 of the BBC Life program, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The first track on Side 2 of Sgt. Pepper was written by George Harrison. It was conceived at Claus Vorman's house on a pedal harmonium. George's composition, Within You, Without You, was included without benefit of any Beatle backing. It was all an indulgence, really. I, th I think that they, um, I don't recall, I don't think they were even at the session, but um, I think they quite enjoyed the idea of having something that was a bit left field on the album. Has George written anything this time? Oh, yeah, he's yeah. done a great one. <laughs> a great Indian one. We came along one night, had about 400 Indian fellas playing here, and it was a great <laughs> swinging evening, as they say. His instrumentals and vocals obviously Indian influence, suggesting a remake of Revolver's Love You Too. You know that Within You and Without You is also a little further introspection where you had Love You Too, which is sort of a person-to-person -person relationship, yeah. and Within You and without you was more or less the introspection and I guess mm. the spirit of, the, of, of people. It's just an idea, you know. George Martin worked very closely with him on scoring it, using a small string section and some friends of George's from the Indian Music Association of London. The tabla, the Indian violin, and all the bending and slurs of Indian music give the piece a sound never before heard in pop music. 
So I found it very fascinating actually working with George on that in trying to get from English musicians what the Indians were already giving us. It started out by being George working with a Dilruba player, which is a kind of Indian violin. And, uh, and then I had to copy that with a bank of English uh, violinists. Within You Without You was just my way of trying to make a Western pop song using some of those instruments and some of those sounds.
By the way, the laughing at the end was George's idea. The piece sounded so solemn that George felt he needed to break the mood. The next is a look ahead to when I'm 64, growing old. McCartney goes from vaudeville to soap opera with When I'm 64, and she's leaving home, hitting the toe tappers, the tearjerkers, and everything in between. When I'm 64 was written in the cavern days of 1962-63. Well, 64 yeah. was something Paul wrote when was we were it? in the cavern. We just stuck a few more words on it, like Granny on your knee and Vera, Chuck and Dave. Yeah. It, was, it was just one of those ones that he'd had that we've all got, really. You know, yeah. the half a song that there's always... This was just one that was quite a hit with us. I think we used to do it when the amps broke down, you know, just sing it on the piano. It was revised for Sgt. Pepper in honor of Paul's dad's birthday, who was 64 in 1967. The soft shoe shuffle was an acknowledgement to his father's vaudeville days. When I'm 64, I had that song when I was a kid. You know, so I had that was about 16. I never did anything with it till I was about 24, and then we put words to it.
are lovely. The simplest track on the whole album, and also the first one that they recorded way back in September. Lovely track. The next is uh, appreciating the ordinary, everyday, lovely reader meter maid. Paul was in Liverpool one day playing the piano when someone mentioned that in America people called parking meter women meter maids. He thought that was a great name, and so immediately started to write a song about them. First, he considered it being a hate song, but then decided to make it a love song, but with a few strange twists. Paul did say that this was to make the authority figure into someone they liked, so that instead of hating a traffic warden, you would say, well, she's not bad, she's got a bag over her shoulder, and she's a bit masculine, but she's all right, she's got her job to do, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. This next one's called Lovely Rita, and it's sung by Paul McCartney. Pay special attention to the drums. Lovely. John Lennon in the background, Paul McCartney in the foreground. Meter maid, which is an American expression for one of those ladies, one of those diabolical people who goes around putting tickets all over your car. And now we come to the final medley of songs, starting with Good Morning, Good Morning, into Sgt. Pepper, and then into A Day in a Life. Good morning, good morning. <laughs> 
It's like going to work and uh, saluting the day and dealing with the everyday business of the day. John would often sit in his Waybridge home tinkering at the piano with the TV on low in the background. One day, a commercial for cornflakes came on with the words, Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning, the best to you each morning. Sunshine breakfast, Kellogg's cornflakes, crisp and full of sun. John took it from there. Well, good morning, of course, was inspired by a commercial, you know, a breakfast commercial. And uh, I suppose that triggered something in John, which made him write the song. I like TV commercials, radio jingles, because I like the idea of saying it in 60 seconds. I like if it says it in one headline, that, that to me is, is the best way of saying it. Simple, straight, and it's over, the message is over. And if they had 60 second records, I'd, I'd be in there making them. I like them short. And again, he drew his inspiration from very mundane, ordinary things like Time for Tea and Meet the Wife. Meet the Wife was a television serial. It kind of indicates the suburbanity of his songs and the very Englishness of the whole thing. We write about our past, you know. I mean, good morning, good morning. I'm never proud of it. I just knocked it off for them to do a song. You know. It's writing about your past, so it does get the kid. It was me at school, you know. Just my whole, my whole bit while I was writing was then. Lennon was also accused of borrowing the Beach Boys' pet sounds practice, using animal noises as an unexpected end for the tune. John wanted to finish this song with a collection of animal noises, starting off with a cock identifying with a Kellogg's commercial. And then each animal was capable of either devouring or frightening the one before it. And we had a whole string of them here. Brass on the track is played by Sounds Incorporated, another Epstein group who play throughout the album. After a few barnyard sounds and a clever splice by George Martin, we segue into the Sgt. Pepper reprise with just the four Beatles. And then into A Day in the Life. The major track of the album. Probably the most momentous song on the album, A Day in the Life, began in a very simple way. A Day in the Life, John and I sat down and he had um, this opening verse. I said, I read the news today, oh boy, you know, that's what I said. I think he'd got the idea, or, or, or we then took the idea from like the Daily Mirror or something. So it had two stories. One was the Guinness child had killed himself in a car, 
Uh-huh. That was the main headline story. Uh, on the next page was about 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. A local councillor was quoted as saying, it's about time they did something. I've been around and counted 4,000 holes. So the, the, the Blackburn, Lancashire, the holes, Albert Hall, all just, just got mixed, you know, just a little poetic jumble that sounded nice. This, in fact, uh, again, was people accused us of, um, of saying it referred to puncture marks in people's arms mm. for heroin addicts and all that kind of nonsense. The moment I remember was when um, we got to a little bit that he didn't have, where we sort of said, I'd love to turn you on. And we, like, looked at each other and said, like, you'd, we know what we're doing here, don't we? We were actually saying for the first time ever, like words like turn you on, you know, and which, had, which was in the culture anyway, but no one had actually said it on record yet. And there was a little sort of look of recognition between us, like do it, do it, get it down. And then I had another bit, um, woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. That was a little bit I had, it wasn't doing anything. And so we thought, well, that'd be good. We could put that in the middle and we got the concept of sort of building it a little bit like a sort of mini operetta. John said, well, let's shove it in the middle and see if we can't connect them up in some way. We connected them with a series of empty bars on either side of Paul's section before we came back into John's as a reprise. And we knew we had to fill those bars with something sensational. And we didn't know what it was going to be yet. And in order to keep the 24 bars so that everybody knew when to come back in again, dear old Mal Evans stood by the piano counting the bars. And just to add further weight to it, he set off an alarm clock at the end of it to, to trigger everybody back into it again. They told me they wanted an orchestral climax to fill these empty bars, a giant orgasm of sound rising from nothing at all to the most incredible noise. The cataclysmic orchestral build-up, which occurs twice in the piece, features 42 conservative symphony orchestra players who were enticed by the Beatles to wear funny hats, false noses, and paper glasses to get into the spirit. Engineer Jeff Emmerich. Well, I mean, they were shocked. They didn't really know what was going on because, first of all, they were also asked to wear evening dress as well, which was unheard of, you know, for a recording session. And there was various funny party novelties and that floating around, you know, funny hats and things. I think it was John that wanted this... As he, I think, as he put it to George, this is the most horrible, loudest sound that could be created, you know. Horn player, Alan Civil. Nothing written down. It was just improvisation all the time. You know, you'd have a, uh, everybody play their lowest note, say, and then just go up and up and up and playing higher and higher and higher. And you think, well, how the hell are they going to use this? And, and there was sort of Ringo dashing around with his movie camera and people. She seemed like a party almost, and booze and, and you know, fags and things like that. Crazy. You couldn't believe it was a session. Trumpet player David Mason again. Except the, for what we had to play. I mean, you don't often go along on a session and just ask to go uh, as high as you could, then start again at the bottom in your own time. So the whole effect was all the strings were sliding up and all the wind were going up chromatically and trombones were giving a bit of slide. We just sort of kept going up and one after the other. It was just an effect. Cello player Peter Halling, who played on the piece, tells us what it was like to work with the Beatles in the studio. They were always very, very uh, kind to the musicians, very nice chaps, you know. They, they were really appreciative of the musicians turning up, you know, and, and some of the musicians were, as you, as you know, first-class musicians. 
And sometimes they used to try and get the atmosphere um, there. And um, number two studio at EMI was rigged up with, with blue and green lights used to flash about, you know, to try and get us in the mood, I suppose. But um, it was, it was, and, and one, I remember one distinct night, I think we were called at 10 o'clock at night um, to, just to do one track, I think it was. Uh, and there was food there and, uh, and drink. And, of course, it all became um, very uh, great fun. They, they, could, they, they could bring us in the studios to experiment. And that's, that's why that's another thing now with, with, uh, with synthesizers. Now they can just sit there and experiment themselves. But in those days, they had to experiment with us. I hear you had the Rolling Stones in this session. They came down, because we had a lot of people there, you know, because it was a big session. And we... The final chord was played by all four Beatles and George Martin on two grand pianos and one upright. It was then overdubbed three more times. This dense, massive sound made a powerful ending to one of pop music's masterpieces. And so, here is the final medley.
there was something else added to the album. Paul said he wanted something to play on the run-out groove around the label. So they went into the studio and chanted something without any sense, and George Martin snipped two seconds off the tape. Not content with this gibberish, Paul said, We never record anything for animals. Let's put on something which only a dog can hear. So they put on a note of about 20,000 cycles, a little private joke for dogs. Most copies released do not have this part put on. The first British copies did. Here's what it sounded like. Some fans have played it backwards and discovered an obscene phrase. When Paul was told, all he could say was, What can you do? We can't win. They'll see anything and everything in what we do. Sometimes it's not worth the trouble. It seemed to encapsulate uh, the spirit of 1967, uh, flower power period and all that. Sergeant Pepper was the link. It was the uh, prism for the period. It was a paradigm for the era because we were in those days always picking up messages, even if, they did, even if the messages were being misheard. Even if we were mishearing, uh, we were trying to tune into a, a, an overall idea, which, which was that all you need is love. I maintain that the Beatles weren't the leaders of the generation, but the spokesmen. Sergeant Pepper in the Beatles style did have a definite trend-setting effect, again involving hair. Since George, Ringo, Paul, and John each grew a mustache for the album photo jacket, the Beatles were blamed for the new facial hair fad. In the early days, Brian had tried to keep the Beatles clean cut, a minor task considering the future fame of his creation. As the Beatles' success increased, uh, and all these marvelous things were being said about the genius of Brian Epstein, he did change. He started to believe his own publicity. He had one very, very, very lucky period where um, all managers go through this when they sign up a lot of artists, but he signed up perhaps eight or nine artists, and all of them had hit records that year. But there is no way that any one man can manage an act like the Beatles, and also seven or eight acts as well. I mean, one of the Beatles, I think, would be a lifetime career, let alone four of them. And he had Scylla Black, and The Circle, and uh, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, and Jerry and the Pacemakers, and, you know, I just don't like what success did to him once it happened. The group had sprinted to success at a tremendous pace. Epstein's direction proved to be the best, sending the Beatles off on a climbing career. The Sgt. Pepper era was a pivotal point in the Beatles' story. But among Brian's most private papers were memos found noting dislike for the Sgt. Pepper album jacket, which seemed to be a symbolic death of the Beatles. The group was pictured standing beside their collective graves with a seemingly unrelated set of mourners. We all know the album is a stereo version, but it was intended to be mono. Engineer Jeff Emmerich. In fact, Pepper was not, not even monitored in stereo. It was, I mean, stereo took a long time to establish itself in, um, in England. And the, the best copy of Sgt. Pepper is the mono version, because we spent three weeks mixing that. And the stereo, we, we mixed in two and a half days. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Has there been an album since that carried as much impact or enjoyment? I remember track by track, it was exciting at that time. Nothing like it had ever been. Lyrics printed on the back cover for the first time. It also has the words of every track on the back, and it's a double feature album, which has a free paper moustache, a badge, and a picture of Sergeant Pepper no left. Sergeant Pepper has been voted the best pop album of all time. 
Although Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is considered one of the first rock concept albums, it's actually a collage of many different elements. What really tied this album together was the production. Sgt. Pepper was the first rock album to have all the songs run into one another. The album's producer, George Martin, explains why this was done. It was a conscious attempt by me to try and get the thing integrated into something that flowed consistently without too many interruptions. Pepper seemed to grow of its own accord. It seemed to have a life of its own when I was editing it. And I was trying consciously to make a, a whole thing, a concept of it. In other words, I was trying to integrate everything, make it flow into one. Because when you look at Pepper, it really isn't a concept album at all. It's just a collection of songs. There's no particular theme that runs through it except maybe there's a band that play different numbers. More recently, John was asked by Anne Nightingale how he viewed the Sgt. Pepper album in retrospect. It's called the first concept album. It doesn't go anywhere. Mr. Kite, all my contributions have absolutely nothing to do with this idea of Sgt. Pepper and his band. But it works, because we said it worked, and that's how it appeared. When you get down to it, it was nothing more than an amble album called Sergeant Pepper with the tracks stuck together, you know, with a few soundtracks. When you'd really be specific about it. Wasn't that spectacular? I mean, when you look back on it, I mean, like anything, it was great then. But uh, people just have this dream about Pepper. Uh, it was good for them, you know. And when you get down to each individual music on it, there's Day in the Life. And I can't think of anything else. Yeah. Well, that's what yeah. you really. Remember, that's really what else is on it, you know, musically, besides the whole concept of having tracks yeah. running into each other? It starts out with Sergeant Pepper and introduces Billy Shears, and that's the end, apart from the so-called reprise. Otherwise, every other song could have been on any other album. A Day in the Life could have gone anywhere. Mr. Kite could have gone anywhere. Ringo Starr. It was colorful, and it was peace, and it was love, and it was music. Paul McCartney. During the making of Sergeant Pepper, George hadn't showed for most of the album which was unusual, as we normally showed for our recording mm -hmm. sessions. <coughs> George hasn't been too interested in making that album. I think he was building a swimming pool. And it was just all a little bit like that. And of course, I was sort of thinking, you know, I thought, well, I won't say anything, but it's a bit dodgy. George Harrison. For me, it was kind of a bit tiring, or it was a bit boring, because, um, I mean, I had a few moments in there that I enjoyed, but generally, I didn't really like that album much. My heart was still in India, you know. It was the, after that, everything else seemed like hard work, you know, it was a job. It was like doing something I didn't really uh, want to do. I was losing interest in being fab at that point. Sgt. Pepper was a psychedelic album, and to me, the psych psychedelic music was um, really a fad. And um, what makes the Sgt. Pepper album good or great is that it, um, even as part of a fad, it transcended the fad, and it will live on for that. Sergeant Pepper, summed up by Al Aronowitz. New sound textures made Sergeant Pepper different from all other Beatle albums. Engineer Jeff Emmerich. People hadn't done, done a lot of things in those days, and was open to experimentation. And it's just that I wanted to get into the drum and, and get what you've just referred to as the depth, and actually, you know, try and get get into it. Because in those days, you, the way you would talk. Uh, was to mic things like that, you know, from a quite a distance and uh, you'd destroy the mic if you came any closer and things like that. So we went completely against that. Paul's bass sound and playing influenced pop music for years. Here, he tells us what was inspiring him at the time. I was listening to a lot of kind of uh, Motowns and Marvin Gaye and Stacks and stuff, which were putting some nice little bass lines in. But I think the big influence was uh, Pet Sounds. 
mm. Beach Boys. That was the album Flip Me. Still does actually. Still one of my favourite albums of all time. Mm. Just because the musical invention on that is like, wow. And I think Brian Wilson was a, was a great genius. I, was, I, I think of Pet Sounds in my head, then I think of Sgt. Pepper's, and I think, gosh, you know, that's not... That, those two albums aren't very alike at all. Only in that they're very creative. They must have picked up on the creative, the creativity of Pet Sounds, not the sound. It's actually very clever, just on, on any level. If you approach it from a writer's point of view, it's very cleverly written. The harmonic structures are very, very clever. Uh, if you approach it from an arranger's point of view, the kind of instruments he's got on there, sort of an oscillator, a harpsichord, um, you know, it's got some crazy stuff on there. Well, I, I remember doing, I, I combined an organ with, with the guitar. And whew, what a sound, it really worked great. We got them so that they were absolutely enhancing each other. It was like, it was like a miracle, a miraculous process. You know, I play for our kids now and they love it. But that was the big thing for me. I just thought, oh, dear me, this is the album of all time. What the hell are we going to do? So my ideas took off from that standard and I wanted to do stuff beyond that. On Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys blended sound effects with music.
because of the work they'd done, it didn't seem too much of a stretch for us to, to get further out than they'd got. We always loved the Morton Fraser harmonica gang. When we were kids, it was a little TV thing where a little bloke came on and they all pushed him out of the way. But it was those giant big bass, ho, 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 ho. And John used to play harmonica, so we always liked that. But when I heard them on uh, Pet Sounds, there's, there's a lot of harmonica, bass harmonica, he uses that. It's, it's the instruments he uses and the way he places them against each other. It's very cleverly done. It's a really clever album. So we, we uh, were inspired by it, you know, and, and uh, nicked a few ideas. I may not always love you but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, will life still go on? Believe me. Show nothing to me So what good would living do me God only knows what I'd be without you I started songwriting it wasn't to write rock and roll it was to write for Sinatra that was that it was to write cabaret in fact one of my first songs was when I'm 64 
Which is da da do da da party away. Hey, you bop, you know, it's big band stuff kind of thing. And so you weren't, uh, you, you, your aims weren't set to sort of doing rock and roll. But um, when we started working together, I think I certainly, and I think John too, wanted to be a Rodgers and Hammerstein, a Lennon McCartney. We consciously wanted to be, uh, you know, a team. I mean, the funny thing is I wanted McCartney-Lennon, but the, of course John was always bossier, and he said, no, no, it sounds much better the other way, McCartney, Lennon-McCartney. So I gave in. While credit is generally passed to Paul for the Pepper LP's origin, Beatle best friend Mal Evans offers another angle. Actually, Paul and I wrote 50-50, Sergeant Pepper, a song and another song on the album called Fixing the Hole. The two of us wrote this. Um, it was at a time when Lennon McCartney was the biggest thing in the world, you know. And Paul said, look now, Lennon McCartney's so big, which is ironic now looking back, you know. But Lennon McCartney's the, the biggest thing in our lives at the moment. We feel that it wouldn't be right, John and I feel it wouldn't be right to put Lennon McCartney Evans, you know, on the bring somebody else into the songwriting team. But you'll get all your royalties and everything will be cool, you know. Me, I was so in love with them that you want my right arm, you've got it, you know. Anything you say, Paul's fine with me. I didn't even care, you know. I was having such a good time. Can you imagine a guy living and breathing and parting with the Beatles, you know, traveling the world with them? There's a, there's a, a hundred mile line of people who would take my place, you know, so I didn't care, I loved them so much. The song when we first got it together was Dr. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and we were quite pleased with this, you know. And then we found out that Dr. Pepper was a trade name in, uh, for a well-known drink in America, so we thought, well, we can't use that, because they'll sue the backsides off us, you know, for using their name. I'm sure they'd have been delighted with one of the Beatles writing a song about it, but we went through a whole list. It was General Pepper, it was... You know, it got down to Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper, that's the one, right? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. To many critics, the arrival of the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album marked the Beatles' performance peak, a musical evolution and expansion surrounded by controversy, and the confirmation that psychedelic drugs had contributed to their newfound consciousness. But was the drug scene anything new to the Beatles? I've been on pills since I was 15, or no, since I was 17, since I became a musician. The only way to survive in Hamburg, to play eight hours a night, was to take pills, like the waiters gave you the pills and drink. I was a drop-down drunk in art school. I was a, a pill addict until help, where, just before help, where we turned on to pop and we dropped drink. Simple as that. I've always needed a drug to survive. The BBC banned the Beatles a day in a life because of the linen line, I'd love to turn you on, created as a bridge between two snatches of different songs. The line wasn't a mere drug message, but an invitation to a vision. Was Lennon describing the day of judgment in verse? His section of the song was a chronicling of news items from the London Daily Mail, mildly exaggerated. Paul provided the wake-up sequence from an unfinished tune of his, and combined with a twice-used orchestral crash, it was analyzed as a musical drug rush. The final prolonged piano chord brings the day to an end. I was very cross that the BBC, in their infinite wisdom, decided to ban some of the tracks, and they wouldn't play. They wouldn't play a day in the life. 
Why? I don't know. Well, they wouldn't, and they wouldn't play Loose in the Sky with Diamonds because this rumor went round that it was all connected with drugs and Loose in the Sky actually stood for LSD, which wasn't true, and that it was a, a, an album which actually was promoting the use of drugs amongst the young. Speech Spiro Agnew gave one of the hits of the 1960s, registering more than one million dollars in sales, was a record entitled "With a Little Help." from my friends. The key lines are this. I get by with a little help from my friends. I get high with a little help from my friends. It's a catchy tune, but until it was pointed out to me, I never realized that the friends were assorted drugs with such nicknames as Mary Jane, Speed, and Benny. But the double meaning of the message was clear to the members of the drug culture and many of those who are tempted to join. Or this one, called White Rabbit. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. And the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all. <laughs> Go ask Alice when she's 10 feet tall. <laughs> there are scores of such songs. The titles themselves often whisper or shout the message. Listen to these. The Acid Queen. Eight miles high, couldn't get high, don't step on the grass, Sam, Stone Woman. These songs present the use of drugs in such an attractive light for the impressionable that turning on becomes natural and even the approved thing to do. And all the while that this brainwashing has been going on, most of us have regarded it as good, clean, noisy fun.
the Jefferson Airplane with their 67 classic White Rabbit, a song with obvious references to drugs and Alice in Wonderland. Like the alternate states of consciousness that were achieved with drugs, fairy tales were very popular with the youth of 1967. Airplane lead singer Grace Slick says White Rabbit was written to point out that the classic fairy tales we all grew up with had their own drug references. I was read too when I was a child. I was read um, Alice in Wonderland, which talks about getting high literally with some stuff out of a bottle, sitting on top of a mushroom with a caterpillar who is smoking opium out of a hookah. She takes a bite out of the mushroom and gets high, literally. Another story is the Wizard of Oz. These people all want something. They all feel that something's missing in their life. Tin Man, Cowardly Lion, so forth. So they try to go somewhere together. They fall down because they're tired from having walked in a field of opium poppies. When they wake up, suddenly there's a emerald city. Another 1967 song with Alice in Wonderland imagery was John Lennon's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds from Sgt. Pepper. When that song came out, it didn't take long for people to figure out that the first letters in the song's title were LSD. John Lennon always maintained that the initials were unintentional, and he said he got the name from a drawing that Julian Lennon had made of his school chum, Lucy. Julian called the drawing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Although the song's imagery does suggest a drug trip with cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head, Lennon said that these were inspired by Alice in Wonderland. Nevertheless, John said that his songs were like abstract art in that people could interpret them however they wanted. They can take them apart, they can take anything apart. Because I go, I hear it on all levels. I mean, I, I know I, we write lyrics and I write lyrics that you don't realize what they mean to after. Especially some, some of the better songs or some of the more flowing ones. I would expect the percentage rate of American casualties to, to go down in 67. We're on the outskirts of the village of Camney with elements of the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. Did I tell them to burn down Detroit? Did I tell them, did I tell the America to bring black people here? Did uh, you tell them to shoot at Lady Bird? I say if they give me a gun and tell me to shoot my enemy, I might shoot you. Policeman waiting, looking up at a building. The sniper is up on the roof. Everyone crouched down behind their cars, waiting. Wow, I'm going to hate Ashbury. There is division in the American House now. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. I wanted to get arrested. I felt it was very important to get arrested because I wanted to protest the war in Vietnam. The war in Vietnam because I love America. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. In hour seven, the Beatles lose their friend and guide through the music world and continue their own mystery tour, taking the group to India. information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com 
also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today podcast on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't (laughs) even lying. (laughs) 